or maybe you've heard of it. I'm not talking about the, uh, the Salem Witch Trials book that's really popular. I'm not, I mean an actual crucible, which is a container that you heat up really hot. I think I have a picture of one of them. You heat up a container. It's usually ceramic clay or something like that, but you put metal inside of it, something that you want to refine, or maybe you want to pour it into it, make coins out of it if it's gold or something like that. And actually, the one that we have here, that's liquid gold there. That's how hot it is. But the, the crucible itself, it doesn't melt. It just gets hot, and it, it shapes and molds and purifies and refines whatever is inside of it. And uh, because of that, crucible has also become you know, a pretty common metaphor that we talk about, where it, it also stands for like a severe trial or um, something in which all the different elements interact, leading to the creation of something new. And the reason I bring that up is because we go through crucibles um, in life from time to time. Anyone know that? Can I get an amen? We go through times of challenge. Um, maybe it's times of adversity, times of opposition. Maybe it's times of tension. Um, you know, we go through mountains, but we also go through valleys. And life kind of asks us, how are you going to act when the temperature turns up? How, I know how you are when things are going well, but what are you like when the heat is on? Um, and... You know, the temptation is to believe that during those times that God is absent because he doesn't feel um, like he's with us sometimes. But scriptures tell us that God is not absent, that he actually uses those times. He uses those crucibles, those crucible times to shape us and to mold us um, because God is more concerned about shaping your character. He's more concerned about who you're becoming than your immediate comfort in the process of that. And how many are thankful that God is <laughs> shaping us? First um, Peter 1, uh, verse 6, talks about it this way. makes the same metaphor. It says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, look at this, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. So it's, it's saying that picture. This is how gold is purified through something like a crucible. And even though gold is the most precious metal that we can think of and has been for thousands of years, it will one day perish. But your faith and the genuineness of your faith is more precious, more valuable than gold that the genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So we all have times where we felt like we are in a crucible, and maybe you're in that kind of time today. And as we've been looking at this series in the book of Esther, Esther is definitely in a crucible time of her life. She is going through a time of... Um, opposition. She's got an adversary. And I know some of you are familiar with the book, and some of you have been here for the series, and some of you maybe haven't heard of the book, but let me bring you up to speed, and then we're going to start to read with the last verse of chapter 6. Um, so Esther is, um, she's a, a Jewish um, girl. She's a, a, um, an Israelite in exile, 
Um, the story takes place in the kingdom of Persia. The Israelites have been taken over. They've been um, exiled from their own nation, and they're in modern-day Iran in the middle of Persia, the, the most powerful empire the world has known. This is about 2,500 years ago, and Esther has been brought there. She has gone, somehow gone from being uh, an orphaned girl out far away from home to now she is the queen of this whole empire. And her, um, the king is named Xerxes. He's kind of a, um, well, he's the richest, most powerful man in the world at that time. Whatever he says goes, becomes law, and can't be revoked. And he is that powerful, but he's also very foolish and hot-headed and has a really bad temper. And uh, he's drinking almost every time uh, we see him in the book of Esther. Um, so you've got Esther, you've got Xerxes, you've got Mordecai, which is Esther's, um, Esther's cousin, who's kind of her adoptive father figure who took her in um, when she was young and orphaned. And he has um, continued to give her advice. And then you've got one more character who's important for you to know for today's message, and that's Haman. And Haman is um, really the enemy of God's people in this story. If you've been here, you've heard us talk about him, or if you're familiar with Esther, uh, Haman is, the, is Xerxes, the king's second, he's his right-hand man. So he's the second most powerful man um, anywhere. Uh, and everyone has to bow to him and honor him. The king has set this up um, because he's, you know, the king says he's worthy of honor, but there's only one person who won't bow down and honor him, and that's Mordecai. And Haman hates it so much that Mordecai won't bow down to him, that he's not just angry at him. He wants to kill Mordecai, but he wants to kill everyone who's like Mordecai. He wants to kill all the people of Mordecai. And so Haman has this plan, and he sets out an edict that goes out into the whole kingdom and says, on a certain day, we are going to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews. They're going to have their own holocaust. And the irony is not lost on me that today we're speaking about this, and yesterday in our country, we have anti-Semitism alive and well. People shot because of um, their ethnicity and being Jewish. This has been going on a long time. So Haman wants to do this on the large scale. And uh, am I too loud? It sounds a little bit hot. I'm hearing feedback and stuff. Okay. Um, Haman wants to do this on a large scale. He gets the law passed. He uses the king's signet ring to send out a uh, um, an announcement all over the whole kingdom that this is going to happen 11 months from now. And that's when Mordecai goes to Esther and says, Esther, you have to do something. You're the queen. Look at where God has brought you. Think about where you were and yet the power and the position he's given you. You have to use that to get this overturned. You have to use that to save your people. And Esther says, well, I can't go in because if I go into him, it's illegal for anyone to go into him without being invited. And I haven't been invited in over a month. And when you go in, if you're not invited and he doesn't welcome you, they chop your head off right there. And they go back and forth. And then Esther says uh, famously, I'm going to do it. And if I perish, I perish. So she stands up with courage. She makes the best plan that she can. She has all the Jewish people fast for three days, and then she goes in before the king. And she begins to make her request, 
And that's where we see chapter five and chapter six. She says, come, uh, the, the king looks on her with favor. He doesn't kill her. He doesn't chop her head off. Yay. Otherwise, the story would have been over. <laughs> story would have been over. But, but she lives, and then the king says, well, he knows, well, if you came in and risked your life, you must want something. So he says, what do you want? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. What do you want? Name it. And she says, I want you to come to a banquet with me, <laughs> and then I'll tell you what I want. Right? So she does that, and she invites Haman, and then uh, he says there, what do you want? And, he, and she says, I want you to come to a banquet with me tomorrow, and then I'll tell you what I want. And then that leads us pretty closely up to last week where Dale preached um, and did an amazing job. It was so good. Thank you, Dale, if you're in here for preaching to us last week. And um, he talked about in the story that over that span, in between those two banquets, the king has a sleepless night, and just how somehow by coincidence he hears the, the story of Mordecai saved his life one time, and he says, we need to honor Mordecai, and you've got to keep in mind that Haman wants Mordecai killed, and there's this whole kind of irony and tension, and things speed up really quick to where we get um, to this week. And um, when Haman went in and wanted Mordecai killed. It was the exact time the king had just heard that Mordecai had saved his life. And he said, you know what? We need to honor him. And so Haman ends up having to walk around the city and say, this is the man who the king wants to honor, to Mordecai, the person he wanted to hate it. So that has just happened on this day. And I'm going to read um, the last verse of chapter 6, and then we're going to hear what's going on in chapter 7. And then um, I want us to look at a few lessons that we learn um, from the crucible of adversity. So chapter 6, verse 14, while they were still talking with him, this is Haman, who has gone home to his family, and he's just, he's in public shame because the man he just went to go see about getting killed, he had built, he had built a gallows at his house, 75 feet tall, to have Mordecai killed. And at the same time, the king said, no, I want you to honor Mordecai. And he had to be the one who honored him. And so he's gone home to his family in shame and told them this. Verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So things start moving quick, and Haman is out of control. He's not in control of the circumstances. He's not even done telling them how sad he is about what's going on when he gets rushed off to the next banquet, and he has no idea what is going to happen at the next banquet. Verse uh, chapter 7, So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. This is, a, this is a, a cordial way of saying, so he's not literally offering her half the kingdom <laughs> um, because he has said this three times. So he would have given away a kingdom and a half. <laughs> but no, he's saying, he's basically saying in public for the third time, ask what you want, I'm going to grant it. So the king is putting it out there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what you ask. Well, he has no idea what Esther's going to ask, um, but we're going to find out. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, 
Grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. She actually quotes the edict that went out to the whole kingdom. And she's basically cueing Haman in, I know what you did. You got to remember up to this point, no one knows Esther's real identity. She has, kept in, she has kept the fact that she's an Israelite, that she's Jewish, secret even from her king for at least five years that they've been married. So think about the pressure that she might be feeling. He's an unpredictable king. He kills people like that. There's a guy waiting with an ax next to his throne to cut off whoever's head he doesn't want to show up, right? And she's about to say, I've kind of been lying to you for five years, right? There's a lot of pressure on this moment, and yet what she does is she, identi- she doesn't just ask, save my life. She identifies herself with the people who are under the threat of death and says, they're threatened, so I'm threatened. And she's saying to the king, Notice this, if my people are threatened and I'm threatened, a threat to the queen is a threat to the king. So this is a serious thing. So this is my request, give me my life and spare my people. For we've been sold to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. She's saying this is a big deal. If, it was, if they just made us slaves, we wouldn't say anything, but they're about to kill us all. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And, you know, just the restraint of Esther in that moment, up until this time, think about it. She's had to interface with the king three times, and she hasn't spilled the beans right? She had, she, the first time she could have just said, kill Haman, he wants to kill me, he wants to kill us all, right? But she's built it up to this moment. And even in this moment, that edict didn't go out without the king's permission. So she could have just held up a mirror and been like, <laughs> he's like, who is he? Where is he? There's some, right? But she's smarter than that, right? And she, and she knows who was the r- real person behind all this, Right? So it builds up to this, who is he, where is he? And Esther said, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Woo, yeah, exactly. Uh-oh, you're at, you're at a banquet and there's three guests. There's the king and the queen and the second most powerful man on earth. And she just like pulls no punches. I'll tell you who it is. An adversary, yes, she is awesome. An adversary and an enemy, it's this guy who's sitting right here. And then Haman, it all comes full circle for him. Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage and left his wine and went out into the palace garden. You know he's angry because he left his wine there at the table. He's He's got to think, right? That's what's going on. He's got to think because he's got an issue. 
In an honor-shame culture, this is the potential for a lot of shame to come on him. You mean to tell me that an edict that went out from my office is the edict that can declare that my queen will be dead and it will ultimately be my fault and everyone in the world will know? And you mean to tell me that Haman made this whole thing up and talked me into it and didn't even tell me what the people group was and that my queen happened to be from that people group? He's got to figure out what do I do? So he goes away to think, leaves, goes to the garden. And then Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, he knows what's going <laughs> This is not going to, he's been around this king for a while. He knows what's going on. He stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Isn't it ironic, to quote Alanis Morissette, um, isn't it ironic that the, that the man who, the reason Esther was here was pleading for her life was because of this man, and now all of a sudden he's begging for his life from her. Interesting. Interesting. And what we might miss if we, if we were just just reading the text and didn't know the culture of the day is that Haman is so upset that he is breaking the law right now because in the Persian custom in that kingdom, no male could be alone with a woman from the king's harem, including the queen, alone. And actually, if, even if you were in the court together, no male could stand closer than seven steps to a woman who was part of the king's harem. And yet, Haman is there alone with the queen because this is his only shot. He's desperate. He's begging for his life. My, how the tables have turned. Verse eight, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. So knowing that, you can imagine how bad this looks. And then here's where it just all comes together and it just starts to, it's like someone set up dominoes and they just start falling down. Then the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. You see this too, like Esther in this moment has revealed who she is. Haman has been unmasked for who he really is. And now they covered his face, um, which means he's going to die. He covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. So think of, I I think this might indicate how little, how, how, how everyone knew how arrogant and prideful and bad of a guy that Haman was that like. This, this servant, he just volunteered this information. Like, <laughs> the king didn't say out loud, what should we do with him? No, the, the servant's standing there, and he's like, there's a pole over there. It's 75 feet tall by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. Well, that looks even worse for Haman. And then the king said, impale him on it which is what Haman wanted to hear from the king, but he wanted it to be about Mordecai. (laughs) 
Well, yeah, same words, wrong person, right? Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole that, they had, that he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Wow. If you've been here with us, if you've been hearing the story, this is really a climactic part of the whole book. This is where we go from fear and I don't know what's going to happen and 11 months of dread to, wow, look at how swiftly the tables have turned. Look at how God has been attentive to the plight of his people. Look at how all these unexpected things came together. And it spells the beginning of the end for Haman, and as we'll see in the next few chapters, there's, there's still a problem. That, that law is still hanging out there. There has to be more done about that. But this is the beginning of the end for the evil plans against God's people. And for the remainder of our time, I want to look at lessons that we can learn from the crucible of adversity. This time of adversity that Esther has gone through, everything that we talked about, everything that we saw here today, what are three lessons that we can learn from um, God's word today? And the first one is this. God keeps his promises. Amen. God keeps his promises. He has revealed himself as a covenant-keeping God. In Exodus 6, when he calls out Israel to be his people, he says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And over and over in the Old Testament, you hear that refrain, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And there's a list of promises that come along with being the people of God. We see God keeping his promises in this story, in the story that we just read. We see it in the reversals that are going on. We see it in Haman, who enters this story basically in the position of power, and Esther, who's here to plead for her life. And then by the end of the story, Haman is pleading for his life because Esther has been given this position of power. There's a promise that God makes over and over in the Scripture. In 1 Peter, 3, 1 Peter 5, verse 3, says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. This story reminds us that God keeps promises like that because how many know that this world would try to convince us otherwise? We see prideful people. We see people who are arrogant. We see people who oppress others. We see people who appear to be given blessing. But we read in the promises of God that God opposes the proud. And that unless we turn from our pride, that will mean that God is opposing us. And we need reminders from the scripture that God keeps promises like that that there's nothing that happens that gets beyond his view. 
There's nothing that happens that God hasn't seen and doesn't know about and won't one day make right. Amen. We need to be reminded of that. We see God's promise there, but we see God's promise even on a bigger scale than that, that God keeps his covenant with his people. The first covenant, that, one of the first covenants that we know of with God's people is the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12. And verse three of it says this, you probably heard it. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You know, the whole time we're reading this story, we're reading this book, we're probably wondering, what, how is this gonna come through? Is God actually gonna, because God said, if people curse you, I'm gonna curse you because I wanna be a blessing to the whole earth through you. And this is a picture of God keeping his promise, protecting his people so that they can be a blessing to the world. Can I remind you before we go into the next lesson, even if you're facing adversity, I don't know what you're facing, but if you're facing adversity, maybe you're in a crucible time now, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God has never made a promise that he couldn't keep. God has never made a promise that he won't keep. Amen? And if we have faith in God's promise, that what, that's what will give us hope to face what we face. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, hope kindled by the divine promise affects the entire life of a man and his inmost thoughts, ways, and feelings. God keeps his promises. Second lesson that we learn, like the first one. God keeps his promises in his timing. Amen. It is hard. You know, um, a lot of you guys know I'm from the South, and, uh, you know, over there is a little bit different than over here, and, you know, I've gotten used to each different culture as I'm here and there, and... Um, we like to think um, back home that you can make a business deal on a handshake, right? Because your word is your bond. And if, if something's going to happen like two months from now and you say you'll be there, you'll be there, right? Um, and then out here in San Diego, it's like, uh, I'm not even comfortable RSVP into that Facebook event until like two days before. Yeah, we got the maybe button. I think the... <laughs> The maybe button on Facebook was installed for San Diego, like the San Diego market. It's like the weather might be bad, you know? It might be 74 instead of 72, and that's too hot. And, or the surf might be good. I don't know. I can't make it. Here's the good news. God is not like that. I don't want to be too hard on us San Diegans, but God is not like that. God has never made a promise that he can't keep. He's sovereign and powerful enough to deliver on his promise every time. Every time. You see that in the story. Even though it seemed like Haman was in control, he had the power. He had the law behind him. He had the gallows built for Mordecai. He ended up being 
put to death on the gallows that he had built. That even though people were plotting against God's people, God could still sovereignly save and rescue his people. Like Genesis 50, where Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Doesn't matter what you meant to do to me because God is stronger than what you can do to me. Amen. And when it comes together, you guys, you guys heard it as I read it, it comes together fast. It's like this moment of like, well, I didn't think God was even here. And then bam, 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 bam. All of it came together and like, it's totally reversed. Anyone ever had a moment like that? I have. When God comes through in that way, when you kind of like have to just stop and scratch your head and be like, wow, (laughs) I didn't even know you had that planned, God. And now I feel bad for doubting you the whole time. (laughs) And you know, Esther, she probably felt that. I don't know. We don't hear the emotions and what's going on, but Esther and Mordecai, there's probably nail-biting before this moment. There's probably fear. There's probably anxiety. But in God's timing, it all comes together better than any of them could predict or manipulate or manage. God is, as the quote says, God is never late, but he's rarely early. He's always exactly right on time, his time. I used to sing a song in my, in my church growing up, he's an on-time God, yes, he is. And then the turnaround was, he may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. He's an on-time God, yes, he is. 2 Peter 3.9 says it this way, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And here it's talking about his promise that he will return. Can I remind you today that whatever you're going through in your life, it may appear like, it may be that God is out of sight, but he's not off the throne. He's on the throne. He's reigning still. He's working all things together for the good of them who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. That nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Amen? His timing may be different than your timing. And it usually is, (laughs) if we're honest. But his timing is perfect. His promises never fail. We doing all right? Good. These are good lessons. I'm not saying that because I'm saying them. I'm saying it because I'm thankful for them. Thankful for God's word. Third lesson is this. God is sovereign. Humans are responsible. God is sovereign. Humans are responsible. Here's what I mean by that. In this passage, one thing that really gets highlighted is the relationship between God being sovereign over all things and the responsibility that humans have for their actions. 
We've already mentioned it in Esther, in the story of Esther. It's really amazing because that person, that woman, Esther, what she does, the plan that she puts together, she uses all of her resources, all of her abilities. She, she fasts. She takes advantage of her position and the favor she has with the king. She doesn't just um, go straight for the kill, but she invites, she basically gets the king to say, I'm going to give you whatever you want three times in public <laughs> before she says, here's what I want. Smart. <laughs> she, she worked this amazing plan and she risked her own life to do it, putting her own life on the line, identifying with her people under the threat of death in hopes that she could save them. And as a, her plan was amazing, but as amazing as her plan was, her plan was not what saved the Israelites. It was God's sovereignty at work. You know, as Dale preached about last week in chapter 6, all of this hinges. In chapter 5 and chapter 7, you see Esther. She's, she's there. She's working her plan. She's doing her best. But in chapter 6, you, I don't think she's even mentioned. She's basically absent. And everything that happens in chapter 6, it hinges on the fact that for some reason that's not told us, the king just can't sleep that night. And for some reason that's not told us, he, does, he has his servants read to him from a certain book of the history of the kingdom. And for some reason, while the servant is reading that book, the story that he turns to has to do with Mordecai, who saved his life from an assassination attempt. And for some reason, the kingdom says, well, it's customary that we honor anyone who does that. Did we honor him? And they say, no, we didn't. Okay, we need to honor him. And then for some reason, when Haman shows up the next morning because he wants to get permission to have Mordecai hanged, the king says, we need to honor Mordecai. Why don't you do it? Here's what I want you to see. Esther's plan was amazing, and she needed to do that. But her plan was not what saved them. It was God at work. It was events that were completely out of Mordecai's hands. They were out of Esther's hands and knowledge. And that's what I mean when I'm saying you are responsible for your actions, but God is sovereign over the outcomes. Psalm 127, Psalm 127.1 says it this way. Unless the Lord builds the house, the, labors, the builders labor in vain. Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. And that's what we see in this passage, that God is sovereign and all our efforts mean nothing if he's not ruling over it and if he's not blessing it. Like Proverbs 16 talks about that we make plans in our hearts, but the outcome depends on God. So this story highlights that, but it also highlights the other side that says, unless the builders build, there won't be much of a house. You guys catch that? Unless the Lord builds the house. Isn't it weird how that's even, that verse even communicates? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, <laughs> labor in vain, it's, to, it's both and. So unless the builders are doing what they know to do and trusting God with what they don't know, there's not going to be much of a house there. Esther gives us this amazing crucible example, this way of behaving in a crucible. But think about what she could have done. You know, we read about what she did, which was awesome, but think about what she could have done if she had just been in these circumstances and, and didn't act how she did. You know, 
at first when she finds out your people are under threat, well, she's in a position of she's had a, she's had a hard life as an orphan, and then she got taken into the harem probably against her will, and now she's the queen, and she can have anything. You talk about it, wealth, pleasures, power, more than she ever thought possible. She could have just said, well, you know what? I'm really sorry to hear about that, but it's already law, and you know it's going to happen 11 months from now. You know what? Que sera, sera. Forgive my whatever language that is. What, what will be, will be. Is that French? Really? I thought that was French. It sounds Spanish. Okay, let's argue later. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So I believe you. I believe you. Okay, so que sera, sera. What will be, will be. She could have just said, you know what? I'm apathetic about that. You know what? I, I have all that I need, so let's eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow we die. Let's have a good time because we know it's bad news, and I can't stop it. So I'm just, you know, God's in control, so I, I'm just going to do what I'm doing here. And then on the other side, she could have, instead of apathy, she could have gone to anxiety. She could have felt the fear of, you know what, if they're threatened, I'm threatened, and I'm going to die, and they're going to die, and I'm the only one who can do something about it, and I have to do it. And she could have felt paralyzing fear and anxiety. She could have moaned about the unfairness of life and the cruelty of those who are in power. She could have complained and asked, where is God? Because it looks like he's not here. She could have doubted the existence of God because of his apparent absence. But something happened in her that caused her to risk all that she had and to risk her own life and to go into action to save her people when she didn't know the outcome. But she knows who holds the outcome. What I'm trying to say to us today is that you're responsible for your actions and God is sovereign over the outcomes. And when we believe that God is sovereign and that God keeps his promises and that he keeps his promises in his timing, it, what that ought to do is propel us to live boldly for the cause of Christ. To go, not, not to seek out risk for its own sake, but to step in faith into what we know he's called us to do even though we can't see the outcome. <laughs> I don't know what I can do, but I'm going to live boldly because I know who holds it. Amen? Boldly in the face of adversity. But how many of you will be honest with me that in the crucible times of our lives, we, if we err, we often err on one of those two sides. We usually err on one side or the other. It's easy to fall just to, just to lean on God's sovereignty and the absence of our actions and just say, you know what? All the outcomes are fixed. My actions don't really matter. What will be, will be. And, and Christians do that, but that's not really a Christian idea. It's from Eastern religions, and it's called fate. You're not going to rise above your destiny and that that's been totally preset and that nothing you do. And when you hold to that, it goes from fate to fatalism. And you look at the challenges in your life and you, you might be tempted to say, well, all we, can do is, all we can do is pray. There's nothing wrong with prayer. You need to pray. But you might just say, well, we're just going to pray and wait. When God might be calling you to do something about it. Or we go to the other side and we just hang on human responsibility. 
And we just say, you know, if it's gonna be, it's gonna be, if it's got to be, it's gotta be me. And God has no hands but ours. And we can chart our own destiny and we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And if we don't take it into our hands, it's never gonna happen. And it can, it can turn into some good things through activism, but I can tell you something, it's not sustainable. Because what it will ultimately do to your heart is make you cynical and you will be worshiping a puny God who can't do something about the things that face you. And it might, it might paralyze you under fear and anxiety. And you might be needing to remember, as God has told me before, remember that the good news is good and that it applies to this. Amen? When it, what ends up happening? Well, if you're on one side, we can become too heavenly-minded for any earthly good. Anyone ever heard that? Yeah? Apathetic about the needs of others. Well, God's got that. Apathetic about the mission that he's called us on. Well, God's got that. Apathetic about sharing the gospel with people who need the hope of Jesus. Well, God's got that. Too heavenly-minded, everything's preset, I'm just going to wait. <sighs> or we're on the other side, and we're too earthly-minded to have any heavenly hope. We're so focused on us and what we can do and what we have to do that we forget that God is sovereign and that God is reigning and that God is control and that God does answer his people. That we are called to pray and rely on him. You see, the Bible says that the goal is prayer plus action. That either one on its own is not enough. We need to lean on Christ and lead people to Christ. We need to rest in the Lord and walk with the Lord. I know it sounds conflicting, but it's true. <laughs> if we trust in God, if we trust in his promises, if we trust that he keeps his promises on time, we have all of a sudden, here's what we have, an eternal perspective that affects how we live here on earth. And and we, when we have that, we can become so heavenly-minded that we do the most earthly good. The Christians who have been most effective in the last 2,000 years, that's been their story. There's a book called True Story, A Christianity Worth Believing In by James Chong. And he says, he says, um, I picked this quote out of something he said because I thought it was really interesting. He says, think about every major beneficial social revolution in the past 2,000 years, public education, health care, human rights, children's rights, women's suffrage, civil rights, literacy education, rights for the disabled, even fair trade coffee. These and more were all started by Christians. Christians who had a view of eternity but lived with both feet flat here on earth. I think this is what is meant by James when he says faith without works is dead. 
right? And I'm here, I'm the first to say, we're saved by faith, not by works. Amen? There's nothing we can do. There's no, our works don't save us and never could and can never earn for us salvation. We're saved by faith, not by works, but saving faith is a faith that works. Anyone ever heard that? I didn't make that up. <laughs> We're saved by faith, not by works, but saving faith is a faith that works. Saving faith will show up in the way that we live. And that's part of why we're responsible for our actions, but we're called to trust in God's sovereignty over the outcome every time. And that he will keep his promises without fail. And that's why we can go boldly into the challenges we face. Is this tracking today? Can I tell you guys that I need this message? I have not, I'm not standing here as the one who's mastered this and I'm preaching down from the mountain. You guys need to work on this. Get it together. No, he's still working on me, right? To make me what? All right, I'm going into songs. I need this message. I, I know what it's like to feel paralyzed by fear and anxious thoughts and all of it because I don't see how it's going to work out. And I know what it's like to rest my heels in my faith, just saying, well, God's got it, so it doesn't matter what I do. So how can we live like I'm talking about today? I know I've failed. I'm guessing that all of us have failed, if we're honest. How can we keep from becoming dispassionate and removed from the problems in front of us and the needs around us? and the needs of our families and friends and coworkers and neighbors to hear about the gospel and the hope we have in Jesus. And then on the other side, how, how, can, we, how can we keep from being so active and so involved in serving out that we forget that we're doing it because of God's grace and his motivation, and we start to think, well, God, where are you? Because the needs are so overwhelming, and I'm never going to be able to do it on my own. We see it in a glimpse of, of Esther's story, and it's called the principle of identification. I mentioned earlier, Esther's identity was a secret. No one knew who she really was. And there's several ways she could have gone about her plan, but the way that we see is that she identified with her people in order to save them. She said, here's my request, king. I'm requesting my life and I'm requesting my people because my people have been sold to be killed. She came under the threat of death in order to save their lives. She willingly did that even though no one in that room was expecting her to. But what was a glimpse in Esther is, a, is the glorious reality in Jesus. Esther went through a crucible time, but Jesus went through the cross. You know, that's where we get the word crucible, the Latin word crux, cruce, cross. Esther stood in the gap for her people, but Jesus stood in the gap for his enemies to make them his people. The band didn't know I was going to use this first, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the gospel, you see the clearest 
vision of this. Not only is God sovereign to bring about his plan of salvation, he's sovereign over the outcome, but he also took our responsibility when he took on our sins. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear that? I'm responsible for why he went to the cross. Those were my sins, and he had no sin, but yet he became it so that I could become the righteousness of God, so that you could become the righteousness of God when your faith is in him and when you turn from sin. Acts 2.23, Peter preaches it so clearly when he's preaching the gospel for the first time on the day of Pentecost, and he says, this man, that's Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So this is God's doing, right? But then it says, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Wait, so was God sovereign in this or were they responsible for it? Yes. Yes. God knew what was gonna happen. Jesus knew what was gonna happen, but he did it out of love for you. And even though you and I are the ones who put him on the cross, he took on our responsibility. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Though we were responsible, he took our responsibility on the cross. He died the death we deserve and rose to give us the life, the eternal life that we could never earn. It's like the song they sang that they also didn't know I was going to say. So I, maybe let's hear that as a double confirmation. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. How deep Father's love. And when you see that Jesus identified, Jesus put his life not only under the threat of death, but the certainty of death to identify with his people and to give them life. For you and I, the gospel, the sovereign act of God to say, it causes us, when we believe it, it causes us to trust in God's sovereignty. To trust, you know what? God, it doesn't feel like you're here now. It doesn't feel like you're going to keep this promise. It feels like things are out of whack. But when we remember the gospel, it, it moves us to trust that God is sovereign and that he keeps his promises, but it also moves us to dive into action and to say, Jesus identified with me so that I might live, and so I'm going to identify with others so that they might live and experience this grace. Amen? First Peter 1, 7 through 9, I quoted the beginning of it earlier. Because these, he's talking about trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, gold perishes even though it's refined by fire. 
may result, your, your genuine faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's when he returns. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. My prayer is that that would be true for each one of you today. And that if you're here and your faith is in Christ, that you would latch onto that promise as it's for you. Though you haven't seen him, though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy where you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. No matter what comes, no matter how hot the heat gets turned up in my life, I can trust that God's going to be faithful and I can do what I know he's called me to do. I can step into the the discomfort of the needs around me that God puts in my path because I know that God is sovereign and that he keeps his promises. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are so good. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you for this time together as the church today. We thank you for your faithfulness that we've been reminded of in this amazing passage. God, that even though you're not mentioned by name in this book of Esther, we see the traces of your work all around. We see you working behind the scenes, and we see you faithfully keeping your covenant promises to your people. Not because they're faithful, but because you're faithful. And God, we call out to that same faithfulness now. God, I pray for those who are here and who are suffering. I pray for those who it's hard to even breathe sometimes what they're going through. Lord, I know that you are with uh, the weary and the broken, the downhearted. And I also know that you are a deliverer and our redeemer. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the lives of these people a thousand times. And so I just pray that they would be comforted by your faithfulness and that they would experience that inexpressible and glorious joy. It's so great, I can't even express it. Because it's faith that's being worked to fruition in my heart. God, that's my prayer for my brothers and sisters today, Lord. And there may be someone here who has not yet believed in you, who has not yet turned from sin and turned to you. And I pray for faith to be awakened in their hearts. If you're here and that's you, just be, begin praying and talking to God, even as I am right now, saying that you want to believe in Jesus that you want to turn from living for yourself and for your, from, your, from your sin and to live for God, to be filled with his spirit. 
and you can take the first steps of a relationship with God today. God, we thank you so much. We ask that you would continue to move during this time and and bless the remainder of our time together. We ask it in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.